Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney, and as we record, it is a beautiful Sunday afternoon here in rural Vermont. Uh, summer's actually been in fairly full bloom for the last week or so, which is nice when you live in a state where summer's about eight weeks long. So uh, it's left us all here feeling, uh, well, pretty, pretty good. How about your end, Eric? How are you feeling? Kieran, Kieran, I, I feel like a new baby. Uh, no control of my limbs, full diaper, want to sleep all the time. Like new baby. Bring on Canelo. Yeah. yeah. Showtime, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. The <laughs> network that brings you the sports Emmy winning all access, the likes of Homeland and Ray Donovan and poorly accented poopy diaper jokes. <laughs> poorly accented is a key detail there. My, uh, despite you uh, being kind in your praise uh, when I attempted a triple g voice recently uh it's really not that good i i, I have some good impressions my my richard schaefer is still the best in the business i believe but uh nah, yes, triple g I, yeah, triple g kind of weird that for a while that was pretty good yeah, yeah. there you go yeah yeah <laughs> of course if, if you don't have any idea which would not be unusual if you had no idea what eric and i were talking about <laughs> um eric of course referring to the latest and the ongoing series that's so popular with boxing fans, Gennady-isms. Uh, Gennady Golovkin was in very good cheer in his post-fight interview with Chris Mannix in the ring at Madison Square Garden on Saturday night after swatting aside Steve Rolls inside four rounds. Uh, we'll look back on that fight later on. Uh, we will also run through the biggest news items of the past week, including fights announced, fights canceled, some good news, some less good news. Uh, we will talk about the International Boxing Hall of Fame induction weekend. Uh, and we have an interview we've been very much looking forward to and we've been teasing for the past couple of weeks uh, with new Hall of Famer Buddy McGirt. Now, we're going to save that for the end of the podcast. It's a lengthy interview, but I, we think you'll really enjoy it. It was great. A lot of fun to do. Um, but we'll start... You know what? Where else should we start? Let's start in the way we've been starting over the last couple of weeks and probably will do for a couple of weeks more. Uh, yeah, the heavyweight division continues to dominate the news in the sport, Eric. Yes, indeed. Boxing's glamour division uh, remains in the spotlight week after week. Uh, and of course, the main story this week is Tyson Fury returning to the ring against... Uh, some guy, Schwartz, who goes to my synagogue, I think. Um, <laughs> but first, uh, some Andy Ruiz, Anthony Joshua fallout to deal with. Uh, we mentioned this in passing during our interview with Stephen Espinoza on Tuesday. Uh, and check that podcast out, by the way, if you missed it. Stephen was great, yeah, you know, when, when he wasn't plucking HBO shows for whatever <laughs> strange reason. But uh, anyway, we mentioned that uh, Joshua has triggered the rematch clause, uh, according to promoter Eddie Hearn, at least. Um, and so he'll be taking on Ruiz again next. Next in November or December, it seems, maybe in England, maybe at Madison Square Garden again. Kieran, does anything about this surprise you? And does this tell us anything meaningful about Joshua's psyche? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Knowing what to do in this kind of situation. Um, you know, a couple of his fellow pros um, have sort of questioned the wisdom of, of throwing Joshua straight back in with Ruiz. And it is a gamble, isn't it? And, and there's obviously there's a couple of issues. Can Joshua adapt technically and tactically and succeed where he failed the first time? And, and does he have the corner team to enable him to do that? But the greater issue, uh, as far as having like a rapid rematch is concerned, is, is the psyche. And it's interesting because in the aftermath, there were all kinds of rumors that something had been wrong with Joshua in the build-up to the fight, that he'd been knocked down or out in sparring, or that he had some kind of panic attack in the dressing room. And 
Uh, everyone involved strongly denied the panic attack rumors. But, you know, during fight week, um, when it was still expected that he was going to roll over Ruiz, um, there, so, there, there he was with a black eye and a cut on his nose. Um, and there were questions about that that he somewhat brushed off. There is an element of specificity to this smoke that suggests there may be some fire to go with it. Um, but, you know, even leaving aside all of that, um, even if everything had been perfect, um, I mean, how is Joshua's headspace in terms of getting back in with, with, with the guy who, and it wasn't just a one punch knockout that you can sort of right. rationalize, uh, uh, you know, even though Joshua showed signs of coming back in, in, in round five in particular, by and large, from the middle of round three, Ruiz was taking it to him and Eddie Hearn confirmed in an interview that basically AJ can't remember anything after, after that left hook in the, in the third round. Um, the evidence suggests he's astonishingly chill and philosophical about the whole thing. Uh, he posted a video a couple of days after the fight, which he owned up to everything, said, look, training was wonderful. Camp was great. Everything was fine. Ruiz just beat me. And, uh, and he says, he was reminded of a quote that you should, quote, never let success go to your head or failure go to your heart, which is very nice. But, um, you know, whether being quite so philosophical and chill is better than fuming about what happens depends on the person of course um right. whether that actually indeed reflects what's going on deep inside and whether he's ready psychologically to take on andy ruiz so soon uh yeah time will tell i guess it's just it's just one of those things that's really hard to tell some guys are just desperate to get back in there for the rematch some people should take a little bit more time uh looks like we'll still see it and well it's one of those where we can be wise after the fact. <laughs> there you go. Um, so we do have that Ruiz Joshua rematch coming up. It appears, uh, as we talked about uh, previously, we have the Deontay Wilder Luis Ortiz rematch coming up, and then after that, it appears we have the Wilder Fury rematch. Um, assuming that is that Wilder beats Ortiz again, uh, and assuming that Fury defeats Tom Schwartz this Saturday. Um, talking of which, outside of you know him. Him being in synagogue with you, and I'm, and I'm sure you guys have spent a lot of time together. <laughs> yes, Who is Tom Schwartz, and does he actually have any chance of pulling a Ruiz, do we think? <laughs> uh, different Tom Schwartz, it turns out. I did a little more ah! research. Not the guy oh, from okay. my synagogue. Yeah, no. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, who is Tom Schwartz? He's an undefeated German heavyweight, 24-0, 16 knockouts. He's young, just 25 years old. And let me be the first to say, and I really might be the first person in the American boxing media who said this, He's not a terrible fighter. Um, he's a little sloppy at times, uh, certainly, uh, from having uh, watched uh, as much YouTube as I could. But then again, so is Tyson Fury. Um, Schwartz is big and strong at 6'5", 240, and he can punch a bit. Uh, he's not a bomber, but he hits hard enough to hurt guys. He is, however, totally untested and unproven. He's beaten some opponents with decent records, but tell me if you've heard of any of these guys. Ilya Mazenchev, Adnan Redzevich, Senad Gashi, Julian Fernandez, Kristijan Krstacic, Dennis Lewandowski, and Christian Lewandowski. Lots of Lewandowskis. Um, unfortunately, he hasn't beaten up Corey Lewandowski. Uh, hopefully that's coming soon. Anyway, those are the best opponents that Schwartz has faced. That, uh, that assortment of names that I presume you are unfamiliar with. So... He's making an enormous leap in class here against Fury. Uh, no fringe contender or, or veteran ex-champs yet to prepare him for this moment. That's why bookmakers are making you pay 100 to 1 if you want to bet on Fury. Uh, and unfortunately, the take back on Schwartz is only about 11 to 1. And 
that's not enough. Uh, at at twenty to one or twenty five to one, and especially in the wake of the Andy Ruiz upset, yeah, I might be inclined to take a flyer. Um, but I fully expect he'll be in way over his head against Fury, and the question is mostly just whether Fury will let him last the distance or, or knock him out. Uh, and seems to me that that's largely up to, to Fury. Uh, right. and, and much has been made in the build-up to this fight of Fury's slimmer physique. Uh, during his hiatus, he claimed he ballooned up to 400 pounds, uh, and he did look somewhere in that ballpark. Is, yeah. um, he got down to 256.5 for the Wilder fight last year, but still at that weight looked very jiggly in the middle. He was 247 back when he upset Vladimir Klitschko in 2015. I would think that's about his best weight, and that's around where I'm guessing he'll be on the scale this Friday in Vegas. Is it fair to say that, you know, he's still fairly young at 30. Uh, After all he's been through, with his mind and body dedicated, is it fair to say that the best of Tyson Fury is yet to come? Well, it is extremely hard to predict the future tra- trajectory of as mercurial <laughs> an individual as Tyson Fury. But I think I think you put your finger on it there, that the key element here is it, it does seem to be in a state of a sort of unprecedented confluence of good physical and mental health, which, you, you know, you want to see in everybody. But mm-hmm. um, you, I think that's probably the first time that we've seen him seemingly on form in both areas there. And. And and he's so utterly unique in his in his combination of his style and his size. You know, not just among contemporaries, but really going back as as long as you can almost think of. Um, that that as long as he's able to keep those elements together, if he can keep his head screwed on, and if he can keep himself in peak physical shape, he's such an awkward and difficult and an unusual guy to fight. He's going to be a threat. Um, I don't mean this to sound overly critical but you would hope that if you were if you're a fury back back you would hope that the best is ahead of him because you know look yes he he dominated you talked about him dominating vladimir klitschko and he did he embarrassed him but that was an awful awful fight mm-hmm. um and he probably outboxed deontay wilder for eight or nine rounds but still had to find some kind of superhuman powers of recovery to get a draw even though you know perhaps a lot of people thought that he won that so you would hope He's still going to have to find some little extra if he perhaps to clearly and convincingly defeat Deontay Wilder in the rematch and then go on to other greater and better things. But I think given that combination of his size, of his style, and if he does have his his mental and physical health together, he certainly it looks like he's putting himself in the best possible position yes. in order for us to see the best of him going forward. And uh, perfect timing for all of that to be coming <laughs> together for him, if yeah. it is. So. Yeah. Um, of course, we may revise that in a week from now. We'll see. <laughs> but assuming that he, he does win and looks good against against Schwartz, um, you know, we'll give our opinions on how the top guys in the heavyweight division deserve to be ranked. Uh, meanwhile, talking of other guys in the heavyweight division, um, one piece of news a little bit lower down the rankings. Uh, Adam Kornacki against, still amazes me he's still fighting. Chris Ariola has been announced for August 3rd on Fox. From the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, uh, we were there just recently. Eric, Indeed. do you remember that? Uh, yeah, we got we got internet famous for a few seconds. We remember a little bit, yeah. a little bit. Uh, so it's a couple months away. We don't need to discuss this in much detail. I don't know how much detail we'll discuss it in in two months, but um, nonetheless, it is a matchup. It's kind of interesting. And what's your immediate impression of it? Well, hey man, fat heavyweights are trending. 
<laughs> any fight involving a heavyweight contender is worthy of national attention these days. Uh, you know, could draw decent ratings on Fox. But this is the perfect time for a couple of guys with dad bods to get in there. Uh, Kanaki is a player. He still hasn't beaten anyone who I'd say was a top 10 guy. I think Arthur Spilka probably is the best fighter on his record. But he's a current top 20 heavyweight. Um, he's been talked about as a wilder opponent at some stage. So this is a fight of some significance. The problem is Chris Ariola is just mm. about done uh, and was maybe always a little overrated. So to me, this doesn't really look like a challenge for Kanaki. But it's a fun fight, however long it lasts. Uh, the slow-mo replays won't be pretty. Uh, but that aside, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Um, so let's take a quick look at the rest of this weekend's upcoming action. Uh, in addition to the Fury-Schwartz fight, uh, we have a, a pair of interesting fights on that undercard. You asked me about the co-feature, Sullivan Barrera versus Jesse Hart, last week. Uh, so now I'll ask you, straight up, who do you favor in this 175-pound bout? Boy, this is a hard time uh, picking this one. Um you know, Barrera, sure, you could say he's fallen just short when he stepped up. But gosh, when he's fallen short when he stepped up, it's against Andre Ward and Dimitri Bivol. And there's no shame in that. You know, and when Horace says the defeat, it's only been against Zerto Ramirez. And boy, it's still as good as Ramirez's record has been and as well as, as he's done. It's still a little bit hard to get a sense of just how good Zerto Ramirez is, I feel. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure about that. It's, uh, you know, I guess if I were to lean in any particular direction here, might be toward Hart, given that I just have a feeling maybe Barrera's gotten as good as he's going to get, whereas might, I, I just kind of feel that there's still something else to come from Jesse Hart, and maybe moving up to 175 will help him find that. But um, I think that's going to be a tight a contest. I'm glad this isn't an official pick. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right. Because right. I, I think it's a legitimately very good fight. Yes, um, uh, I, I, I could tell how much trouble you were having by all the times you dragged out words along the way. A lot of maybes, <laughs> not just a maybe, but a maybe shows that you're really on the fence. Yeah, that's your tell. Uh, uh, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, the other notable vote on the show is a women's contest, Michaela Mayer, putting her perfect 10-0 record on the line against 13-4 and Elizabeth Crespo of Bolivia. Uh, this is in the lightweight division to Katie Taylor and Delfina Person. Uh, where does Maya fit in with them, especially if she wins? So she is the very promotable American in that mix. Um, she was an Olympian in 2016, though she didn't medal. Um, she might be right up there in the conversation for best in the division eventually, uh, but not yet. She's really a prospect, whereas those other ladies you mentioned are fighting at the championship level. Um, and she's mostly been fighting at 130 pounds, um, so I, I guess I'm not sure which division she'll ultimately land in. This will be her first 10-rounder, uh, so that, again, emphasizes that she's really a prospect just starting to emerge as a contender. She hasn't beaten any serious contenders yet, so give it time. Keep an eye on her. She very well might be a big opponent for Taylor a year or two from now if they both keep winning. Uh, one other fight card of note this weekend. I'd forgotten that there's another Cruiserweight World Boxing Super Series tournament going on uh, until I saw these fights on the schedule. Uh, the semifinals are Saturday in Latvia. Uh, Myris Bredis versus Christoph Glovaki and Junier Dortikos versus Andrew Tabidi. Uh, Bredis and Dortikos were both in the original WBSS tourney, uh, both lost in the semifinals. This is 
something of a consolation bracket tournament, I guess, with the two of them in there. But these are solid fights. Uh, does either matchup particularly interest you? Yeah, look, if it's any consolation, this will pass me by as well. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and look, I like both fights. Uh, you know, Dortikos's only loss was in that previous tournament, and it was a hellish fight. Uh, fantastic fight in the semi-final against Murat Gassiev. Um, Tabidi, who he's facing, is an unknown quantity to me, although he's undefeated at 17-0. He didn't have many names of note on his resume until he outpointed an admittedly somewhat shop-worn Steve Cunningham and then knocked out Latif Coyote, which is a good notch to have on your belt, although Coyote's now lost his last four fights, which suggests he may be shop-worn too. Um, on the other side, Bradis took Alexander Usyk to a majority decision in the WBSS last year, which uh, I think in years to come is going to be uh, uh, an achievement to hold up high. So <laughs> yes. he is already right now, I think. Uh, he also has wins over Mike Perez and Marco Hook. And uh, Glovacki's only defeat was also to Usyk, uh, albeit a younger version. And he also has wins over Steve Cunningham and Marco Hook. So yes, look, it's a best runners-up pair of bouts. But they're both ex- intriguing. I think they're both very close calls. And the winner's... And indeed, the winner of this version of the WBSS will be well positioned, I think, to make a push back to the top of that division. Now that Usyk has moved up to heavy, it's sort of it's, it's almost like you can reshuffle the pack and start again a little bit. Um, yeah. So and that's going to be the opportunity for those guys to do that. Uh, while we are on the topic of upcoming fights, we'll talk about this more in a week or so. Uh, but live boxing returns to Showtime with a Showbox card on Friday, June 21st, headlined by towering super welterweight Sebastian Fundora. He's 12-0 with eight KOs. Plus lightweights Mikel Rivera, 15-0 with 10 KOs. And Jose Romero, 21-0 and 7 KOs in separate bouts. And if there's live boxing on Showtime, you know what that means means there's a chance to win some money and prizes on DraftKings with the Showtime Boxing Pick'em Game. That's right. Uh, I've been playing the last several months having fun, and it's a good thing I'm having fun because I haven't managed to win any money yet. Uh, But I'm feeling like this is going to be my week. Uh, Every Showtime fight card offers a chance to win your share of a $5,000 prize pool and a Showtime swag bag. Plus, there's a season-long contest where you can win a trip to every 2020 Showtime Championship boxing event. There are two ways in this world to get free tickets to all the Showtime fights. Become a Showtime podcaster or dominate the competition on DraftKings. As far as I know, neither Kira nor I are ready to retire just yet. So head to DraftKings.com slash Showtime. Make your picks. That's your best shot. And it's completely free to play. Again, DraftKings.com slash Showtime. Also, though, I would not rule out anybody's chances of taking over the Showtime podcasting (laughs) spots. I'm just not ruling it out. Despite the just, fact that we are ready to retire. Eric. Right. Okay. I see. That's where I thought you were going. Right. That we are, uh, this, someone could prove us to be replaceable. I, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> if we haven't already back. proven ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Right. Gotcha. Uh, yes, exactly. Those people are Eric Raskin and Kiramov. All right. <laughs> um, shifting from the fights that await us to the fights that we all just watched. Uh, it wasn't a huge fight weekend, but there were a handful of bouts of note. And certainly the main event of the weekend, even if it was expected to be a mismatch, was indeed the return of Gennady Triple G Golovkin. Uh, he knocked Steve Rolls down and out with a straight left hand out of a southpaw stance in the fourth round. Uh, it's the first Triple G fight for which I personally haven't been ringside in over five years. And honestly, wow. you know what? I think you could tell he missed me a little bit. <laughs> uh, it was... Uh, it's the kind of performance that we didn't see much of from Golovkin in his sort of early years of, of coming to the attention of a worldwide audience. Uh, but it's perhaps a little bit more in line 
with the kind of outing we've almost come to expect from him, I think, in the last couple of years. Uh, Golovkin's a guy he's always liked to keep active. And since he's been in the Canelo phase of his career, he just hasn't been as active. And that, I think, combined with his increasing age, showed just a little against Rolls. He looked a bit rusty at first. He took a little while to warm up. His punches were a tad tentative early on as he sought to find his range and timing. And he ate a couple of power punches from, from Rolls. But... Eh, he's always been prepared to do that occasionally against opposition he doesn't particularly respect. But once he was in his groove, uh, he did dispatch roles summarily, um, you know, really looked to be absolutely in his groove in the third round, finishing him off in the fourth. And he brought a few tricks in the old Golovkin playbook, digging in some body punches and bringing out the patented, if you're going to hold your hands up high at the face, I'm going to hit you on the top of your head move before subtly and suddenly switching Southpaw and, and knocking rolls out with the left hand. Uh, Eric, anything in particular, good or bad, stand out to you from this performance by Golovkin? Uh, yeah, well, first off, I don't know how he keeps doing it, but almost every Triple G KO is memorable. There, there's something <laughs> physically <laughs> unique about each one. Um, and in, in this case, uh, it was it started with, as you mentioned, the, those hooks from those strange chopping angles that only Golovkin uses. Uh, those set up the finish, and then he flattened him with the, the shot from the southpaw stance. Uh, just really fun replays to watch, uh, unless you're Steve Rolls, of course. Uh, and uh, good job, by the way, uh, by the ref, counting to 10. Uh, we know how I like that. Uh, another thing that stood out was the return of the Golovkin body shot, which you referenced. Um, he refuses to go to the body when he's in with Canelo, presumably because Canelo is good on his feet and dangerous with counters, but against almost everyone else, Triple G is a monster body puncher. Glad to see him going downstairs against Rolls. Um, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't stop and credit Rolls for fighting pretty well yep. right right up until the moment where Golovkin hurt him. Um, but, you know, three, three plus rounds, he was looking pretty solid in there uh, to harken back to what I said last week. Um, he was a little closer to the Willie Monroe end of the spectrum than the Dominic Wade end. Uh, but either way, Golovkin was correctly priced as a 100 to one favorite. Um, and by the way, time to pat myself on the back for a good bet. Uh, I wasn't going to bet a hundred dollars to win $1 on triple G. Um, but he was priced at minus 625 to win by knockout TKO or DQ. I don't like doing the bet a lot to win a little thing. Um, but I took my chances here. I thought it was worth it. I bet uh, $75, which is a lot for me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very nitty better. Uh, but I bet $75 to win a mere 12 because I thought it was that sure of a thing that Triple G was knocking rolls out. So, uh, you know, you. I'm pretty wealthy Living the, now. Living the dream. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, you asked me this question last week. Uh, now I'm going to fire it back at you. A lot of talk uh, about... Triple G moving on to that third fight with Canelo next, but it is no sure thing. So are you okay with Canelo versus someone else and Triple G versus someone else this fall, or does it have to be Canelo Triple G three? I think unless it came with an absolute ironclad guarantee that they would be facing off in May, I think anything else would be an absolute travesty at this point, simply because there's no really, there's no remotely credible or plausible reason why there should be anything else. Um, the fight's already been made twice. Well, actually, it's been made three times, hasn't it? It just happened twice. Right. Um, 
you know, the two, they're clearly the two biggest names in, in, in the best talents in the middleweight division. Um, after Jacobs lost to, to Canelo, the most realistic challenger to the duopoly who's remaining is Jamal Charlo. And given that he's PVC fighter and both Golovkin and Canelo are with DAZN and DAZN affiliated promoters, a Charlo fight is theoretically harder to make than one between Triple G and Alvarez, which would mean one side is actively avoiding the, the trilogy. Um, yeah, Demetrius Andrade's waiting in the wings, and I do actually think stylistically he'd be a really uncomfortable matchup for either guy, but really, who's clamoring for that? Right. Um, look, Canelo's promoter, Oscar De La Hoya, tweeted after the fight that when Golovkin beat a real fighter and got a belt, he'd consider making the third fight. But all that shows is that Oscar's terrible at being a troll. Um, <laughs> if you're going to try to make some kind of threat, if you like, it has to at least be partway plausible it has to be the kind of thing that your fighter's biggest fanboys can recite with some kind of straight face and who can realistically say well you know Golovkin needs to prove himself against a good fighter or possibly right. get a WBU belt before he <laughs> deserves the third fight with Canelo you know I mean come on um look obviously there'll be there's going to be bluffing and jockeying for money and I think key location uh, and all of those kind of things but as I said look it's happened twice it's done Big business twice. It's been a fabulous fight twice. Tom Loeffler is not a difficult man with whom to do business, as has been established at least twice. Mm -hmm. um, and the Loeffler Triple G side isn't going to be the one throwing obstacles in the path of this one. Um, if it were to be delayed now, like I said, the possible exception of it absolutely being guaranteed in May, it would clearly be an extremely transparent effort by... De La Hoya and company to get as many months and miles on Triple G's odometer as possible. Uh, I actually think I'm not normally the kind of guy who gets like agitated if a fight isn't made immediately, if there's a chance it can happen down the line. I am not the kind of person who still stays awake at night wishing that we'd seen Juan Manuel Lopez and Yuri Yorkis Gamboa <laughs> and hate and, and coming out in hives every time somebody says marinate. Uh, I'm just I'm not that kind of person. But this really does need to be the fight that gets made now. It would be silly for it not to be. Yeah, and I hope what Oscar is doing here is that he has sort of come to enjoy this thing that happens where when Canelo takes a big fight, they can sort of play this card of his advisors were and his managers didn't want him right. to, but Canelo just insists on fighting right. the best over and over. They've, they've been able to go to that well a few times and legitimately that in the past, there have been times when people maybe didn't want him to fight in Austin Trout so soon or in Eris Landy Lara right. or, or, and, and he insisted on it. I'm hoping that's what Oscar's doing here. Just sort of setting himself up as the bad cop before Canelo says, bring it on. I want Golovkin. Right. Right. That's very charitable. I hope I hope that, <laughs> it is. that is correct. Yeah. All right. Uh, there wasn't much of note on that Golovkin rolls undercard. Uh, perhaps a few prospects worth keeping an eye on. But there was a top fighter on a competing card with featherweight title holder Oscar Valdez returning back a game challenge from overmatched uh, Jason Sanchez via 12-round unanimous decision. Uh, the story with Valdez, as we touched on last week, uh, of late, has been him sort of like towing the line between boxer and brawler. Uh, saw a bit of both. Uh, from him on Saturday night. What did you think of how he did uh, with that against Sanchez? Yeah, he, he was very much walking that tightrope in this fight. Yeah. It's tricky. You want him to be exciting, but if you're his people, you want him to keep winning. Uh, he pulled off both here. Uh, the fight was 
solid entertainment uh, and at the same time Valdez won by a mile. And you can do both, you know, uh, Barrera, Morales, Pacquiao, Marquez. The recent featherweight golden age was filled with guys with serious skills who let themselves get dragged into brawls, some more than others. I would have liked to see Valdez score a knockout win here, of course. Um, he got the big knockdown in the fifth, mm. but he remained poised. It didn't come. He took some punches, kept it entertaining. It went the distance. He finished strong, almost uh, had him reeling there in the 12th. I think he has to be satisfied with the performance. Uh, and Sanchez came to fight. So good night overall, I thought, for Oscar Valdez. Um, now, there was talk afterward about him moving up to 130 pounds, but he seems to want at least one or two big fights at 126 first, as long as he can keep making the weight. It's a solid division at the top. Leo Santa Cruz, our bestie Gary Russell Jr., <laughs> uh, Josh Warrington, Carl Frampton. Is there one of those guys in particular you'd like to see Valdez tangle with before he leaves the division? So it won't happen for all the boxing politics reasons, I suspect. But stylistically, skill-wise, I, I mean, a matchup with our BFF would be, <laughs> I think it'd be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Two fast-handed, talented guys who can both box but are willing to mix it up when necessary. Um, really top-tier talents, but I would love that fight. That would be a, a really, really fun and exciting fight to watch. Uh, any of the ones you mentioned would be good. Um, they'd all bring different elements to it. Uh, I, I prefer a Warrington fight over a Frampton fight, um, you know, given that the Warrington's sort of the guy in the ascendant right. there. But, uh, but no, I... I Gosh, I think Gary Russell Jr. against Oscar Valdez, that would be a, a dream fight. Yeah. Uh, one last fight to mention. Uh, Cletus Selden stopped Zab Judah in the 11th round at Turning Stone Casino on Friday night. Uh, I only saw parts of it. It was a bit rough, uh, as you would expect. Judah uh, showing up 41 years old, really no timing and little balance. Uh, and Selden absolutely relentless. Uh, the two men... Posed for photographs uh, at the property later that evening, but Judah apparently began to feel unwell, and he went to the hospital where it appears a scan revealed a brain bleed. Uh, on Sunday morning, in the midst of all kinds of uh, internet rumors about what was happening, I asked Joe DeGuardia of Starboxing, who promoted the bout for information. Uh, he said, uh, Zab is in the hospital. He is awake and communicating and making progress at the present. He and his family are just requesting privacy. Uh, so that was the status late Sunday morning, uh, and we hope it only improves from there. Uh, we do also want to add that Felipe Orucuta, whom viewers may have seen against Juan Francisco Estrada on HBO in September, uh, is uh, in a coma uh, after collapsing in the ring. It was really horrible scene. Collapsing in the ring after his fight on Friday night against Jonathan uh, Titan Rodriguez, uh, medics having to perform CPR on him right there. Um, obviously, our thoughts are very much with him as well as with Zab. Yeah, um, just, uh, you know, bad news on both fronts. One obviously looking considerably worse than the other, but we certainly hope for them both to make full recoveries. And, uh, you know, we'll be sure to provide updates uh, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a few news items to cover. Uh, we'll try to go somewhat rapid fire on these. Uh, first up, Tony Harrison suffered an ankle injury and is out of his June 23rd rematch with Jamel Charlo. He's been replaced by Jorge Cota. Uh, how big of a, of a bummer is this to you, Eric? 
Um, on the bummer scale, I, I'd say this is about uh, six out of ten frowny faces. Um, I, w- I was very much looking forward to this rematch, and I have to say I'm not really interested in Charlo versus Coda. Um, but the reason it's not h- higher than a six here is that Harrison reportedly won't be out long. Hopefully they can just bump this back uh, about three months and reschedule it. Um, so one fight comes off the schedule. Uh, another is added to the schedule. Uh, this one's been on the unofficial schedule for several weeks now, but now it's official. Showtime Championship Boxing comes to Baltimore on July 27th for Javante Tank Davis versus Ricardo Nunez. Quick initial impressions. Uh, always good to see Tank in action. Um, and, you know, the joint will certainly be rocking in, in Charm City. Uh, for the hometown return there. Uh, as for this particular matchup, uh, I haven't had a chance to look at Nunez. Uh, I do know that he's mandatory, which isn't necessarily saying much, but he is on a 10-fight winning streak, and nine of those wins in that streak coming by way of KO. Uh, obviously, we will have much more to say about this in the coming weeks, and I'll have a much firmer opinion after I've read Gordon Hall's notes and he tells me how <laughs> I feel about it. There you go. Um, uh, on the same date, uh, Justin, I do have feelings about this one. Uh, a 140-pound alphabet unification match between Jose Ramirez and Maurice Hooker, which is perhaps most notable because top rank is actually letting Ramirez go to the zone for this fight, which makes me think either they don't have any stake in him, which I don't think is the case, or they're very convinced he's coming back with the belt. Um, either way, uh, how encouraging is that sign to you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great sign. I don't know if it'll prove to be the start of a trend, but this is a good matchup. Two solid championship-level fighters. I'm glad they're facing each other. So even if it is a one-off, it's a fine one-off. Uh, but if it's more than that, if this is the start of a more relaxed era of top rank and PBC and matchroom fighters crossing streams, that's great. Uh, you know, that's that's perhaps the biggest stumbling yeah. block currently hurting boxing as, as a sport. So uh, anything we can do to um, diminish the, the amount of politics preventing matchups is just great for boxing fans. Indeed. Um, Getting away from these fight announcements, we have some outside-the-ring news to cover. First, some very positive news. Adonis Stevenson's recovery from a near-fatal in-ring injury is progressing quite well. He did his first interview this week, and he looked good, sounded good, was shadowboxing a bit, saying he wants to be a trainer now. I know that people have strong opinions about Stevenson. He has his detractors, and for good reason, but... I assume this story gave you positive hashtag feels, Kieran. Yeah, it did. I mean, partly because, you know, I've only ever had very positive personal experiences with Adonis, notwithstanding right. his, you know, history and all of that. Um, but also because, I mean, gosh, you generally assume the very worst when a boxer is as badly injured as Adonis was. Um, it appears to be a quite remarkable recovery, actually, in such a short space of time. As you know, as you said, he's able to walk. He's he's able to talk quite well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite quite remarkable. Uh, they they'd given out a couple of little bits of updates over the preceding months, saying you know he'd been moved from one facility to the other, and now he was trying to talk and. It, it had a bit of a feel that, um, you know, maybe folks were trying to put a bit of a positive spin on a difficult situation. But no, he looked, he looked really good. So that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And it is, honestly, it's a bit of a rare bright spot in what is becoming an increasingly heavy edition of the podcast, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, on the opposite side of the feel spectrum, God, this is just terrible. This is just awful news this week for former champ Meldrick Taylor. 
for whom things just really haven't been good ever since, really, that, that fight with Julio Cesar Chavez, and who was arrested following an armed standoff with Philadelphia police. Uh, his mugshot all over the boxing internet, and he does not look a well man. Uh, this is just really depressing. I, I, I don't really know quite what to say or have much desire to say much. I don't know if, if you have anything you want to add. Yeah, I'll just add that I've heard occasional sad stories about Taylor over the years. I remember uh. something like maybe 15 years or so ago hearing he was supposedly spotted on a Philadelphia street corner preaching atop a wooden crate and making little sense. There have been stories like that with him for a while. So, you know, this is one of those things that is very upsetting, not necessarily surprising, he is quite unrecognizable now from his fighting days. Mm. You see that mugshot. What can you say? Uh, it sure feels like Meldrick should be in a facility somewhere. Yep. Um, on a much happier note involving outstanding former fighters, the International Boxing Hall of Fame welcomed nine new inductees this weekend. Uh, boxers Donald Curry, Julian Jackson, Buddy McGirt, and Tony DeMarco. Matchmaker slash promoter Don Elbaum, referee slash judge Guy Jutras, publicist Lee Samuels, broadcaster Teddy Atlas, and one posthumous inductee, journalist Mario Rivera Martino. Congratulations to all of them. And I know Lee Samuels is an induction of particular significance to you, Kieran. Yeah, and, and I'm certainly not alone. Uh, anyone who spent any time at all around boxing, and especially ringside at top-ranked fights over the last, gosh, many years... Uh, will have had encounters with Lee Samuels. And anybody who's had encounters with Lee Samuels will have only positive things to say about him. Uh, when I first showed up in Las Vegas in 2003 on what I thought would be about a six or seven month writing project about boxing, uh, Lee was one of the very first people to take me under his wing. I actually moved to Vegas for a while there. It turned out to be for about eight or nine months to try and you know get a feel of the whole place and, and the whole business. And I made sure that I had an apartment very close to the top rank offices so I could just pop over and have coffee with Lee and, and, and pick his brains. And Lee, despite being an extraordinarily mellow guy, drinks coffee all freaking day. Like any time <laughs> you go over there, he's gonna ask you if you want to have some coffee. Um, uh, he's really, really a terrific guy. He's got a lot of history. Uh, in and around the sport, uh, in between, he's had two spells of top rank, and in between, he worked at the sports book at Caesars. So he's got like a whole good grounded uh, look at the whole sport, and uh, a Las Vegas fixture, a ringside fixture, and uh, really one of the good guys. And uh, I couldn't be happy for him, and I know a lot of people couldn't be happier for him. Um, and so, if Lee is the kind of new Hall of Famer who's very well known to those of us inside the boxing business bubble, but not to the wider world, uh, our next guest is guaranteed to be recognized ringside pretty much everywhere, courtesy of over three decades now of fighting and training at the top level. He won a 140-pound belt in 1988, a welterweight title in 1991, and he faced an absolute murderous row of opposition. Uh, and then after a professional career in which he was a regular and popular fixture at Madison Square Garden and the old Felt Forum, now known as the Theater MSG, he hung up the gloves and he switched to training. He's perhaps best known for his partnerships with Antonio Tarver and Arturo Gatti. He's now working with Sergei Kovalev, but he's about to achieve even greater fame as a guest on the Showtime <laughs> Boxing Podcast. Newly minted Hall of Famer, Buddy McGirt. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So first of all, describe for us, if you can, that phone call from Ed Brophy at the Hall 
to let you know that you had been inducted to the Hall of Fame. What were your emotions going through your head after that call? No, you know, every someone had told me I was on the ballot, you know? Okay. And every, every year, Ed Brophy calls me to invite me up to be a guest. Okay. So when he called me this time, I'm saying to myself, he's calling me to be a guest again. I'm not going back up there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then, bam, we talked on the phone, but he has a different tone of voice. So I'm like, okay. I said, uh, this don't sound right. I said, Ed, I said, what's going on? He says, okay, buddy. I just want to be the first to congratulate you for being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I was like, thank you so much. I started crying, you know. Hmm. Then he says to me, but you can't tell nobody. You got to wait a week. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> He's like, yeah. So, like, I told my wife and kids because I, I was home. But I was like, I told them they can't tell nobody. And they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, we can't. We got to keep it on our heads for a week. So that was the longest week of my life. <laughs> What a, what a relief, I guess, to finally be able to uh, to tell everyone and not have to keep it a secret anymore. Exactly, excuse me, exactly. You hit it right on the head. Um, so for the current generation of boxing fans, uh, you're you're known as a trainer, uh, but of course your Hall of Fame induction is coming as a fighter. Uh, you know, recognizing your run at the top at 140 and 147 pounds in the late 80s and early 90s. Do you find that? current fans uh or even some of the boxers you've trained in recent years are surprised to learn that you aren't just an ex-boxer but were in fact a, a two-weight champ and one of the top fighters of your time you know i was training this fighter from kazakhstan you know mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago and i was showing him some moves on the heavy bag and he's looking at me <laughs> he says he goes do that again so i did it he goes did you box before <laughs> Say yeah. He goes, can you do the move for me again? So I did it. And he goes, wait a minute. He goes, did you really box? I said, look, man. So I showed him a tape. We went to YouTube, and he just he started hugging me and kissing me. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you was doing the move too easy. He said, you're doing it too easy, and you're throwing the combinations too easy. He goes, you know, what I mean, he goes, I, I figured you had to have boxed before. This young man had 80 fights. He couldn't believe it. Oh, amazing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, look, even um, even Hall of Fame careers generally start pretty quietly and auspiciously. I believe I read that the purse for your first pro fight was a gargantuan $200. Um, what, what do you remember about that fight? And what were the circumstances? What was your life like at that point when you turned pro? Okay, I turned pro. I was in high school. My father just passed away. My girlfriend just got pregnant and her father kicked her out. Damn. And I was scared to tell my mother. And I uh, was supposed to go to college. So I'm like, damn. So they called me on a Thursday night and they says, we got to fight for you next Tuesday. So I said, well, how much? They said 200. I said, I'll take it. And then we drove to Jersey. I met Al Cerdo and, uh, the rest is history. You know, I fought the fight, got a draw. And um, when I went to uh, the middle of the ring to get the instructions, the referee said, do you have one a cup? I said, yeah. He goes, where is it? I said, I got it on. What I had on was a jock strap from my Little League football days, you know? <laughs> he, said, he, said, he said, you're in the pros now. You, That's not a cup. <laughs> so we had to go borrow a cup. And God bless Jimmy Dupree. 
who was a light heavyweight fighter back in the day, he had some guys on the car, and he gave me a cup to wear. And when the bell rang, I came out, and he cracked me, and then after that, it was all hell. I don't remember anything else. We just fought our ass off for four rounds. I got my 200 bucks, and I thought I was rich, but it was gone in within two days. Mm. <laughs> I had to stock up on pampers and stuff, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Two, 200 bucks, and you had to uh, wear somebody else's cup. That is a, that's a yes. rough way to turn pro. Exactly. <laughs> so so you, you mentioned that fight was a draw, um, but you went on a pretty darn good win streak after that. You, you uh, won your next 28 fights, and then you suffered your first loss against Frankie Warren. What did you learn yeah. from that defeat? Um, and, and did the fact that he beat you make it all the more satisfying that you won your first major title by stopping him in a rematch? You know what? I'm, I'm going to thank him for that defeat helped make me a better fighter. Mm. You know, after the decision, you know, I went back, everybody was upset. And Murad Muhammad told me, keep your head up, champ. You got nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. So I... um was leaving the arena, and everybody was getting in the car. And I said to my manager, I'm going to walk back to the hotel. And he goes, what? I said, Just, I need some alone time. It was about a mile walk, you know. It wasn't far. And when I got to the hotel, I put it behind me. I, uh, when I got to the hotel, my manager came. He goes, so, kid, you know, what are you going to do? I said, listen, I need you to give me a fight. He was like, what? I said, I need to fight again. He goes, let's talk when you get home. I said, no, ain't no talking. When you get home, start working on a fight. Mm. And that was in July when I lost to him. And I fought in September. I fought Sal Mambi, former world champion. <sighs> and Randy Gordon called me and said, are you crazy? I'm like, for what? Because you're going from fighting a guy 5-2 to fighting Sal Mambi, who's a former world champion. I said, Randy, I got it under control. I mean, because I don't know, but it's a tough one. I said, Randy, I have it under control. <laughs> and it helped make me a better fighter because when I got in there with him, you know, Saul Mamby was very, very, I can't stress the word, very intelligent, smart fighter. You know, he tried playing mind games with me at the press conference, but I'm like, man, I, that's not going to happen. I got to win this fight. And um, I won a unanimous decision. You mentioned, we talked about Frankie Warren. You just mentioned Saul Mamby. The guys you fought at 40 and 47, I mean, it was a ridiculously deep roster of opponents, man. There's Livingston Bramble, Howard Davis Jr., Meldrick Taylor, and, of course, Pernell Whitaker, who you fought twice. Who or what really stands out out of any of those, or maybe all of them, as you look, as you look back on your career? Wow. It's, 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 you know, I would have to say the second Frankie Warren fight and the Simon Brown fight. Um, mm, Simon Brown, yeah. It was a fight that made me just go into a zone that when I came home, it took me a few days to come out of that zone. Mm. Because, uh, you know, but what prepared me, you know, honesty, what prepared me for them, I fought a kid named Vincent Relaford out of Texas. We fought for the WBC Continental title. And when I saw him at the Wayne, I said, I'm going to knock this guy out. And let me tell you, I made one mistake in the beginning. I went there and tried to stand toe-to-toe with him. Then by round five, I said to myself, buddy, this shit ain't working. We got to, <laughs> we got to switch tactics. We got to switch tactics. So I went back to the corner. My man's like, yeah, you got him. You got him. I said, nah, man, that ain't working. I got to figure out another way. So I started boxing him, and it was working. And then it's funny. 
Sugar Ray Leonard fight with Marvin Hagler came to mind. Where Ray Leonard would throw a quick flurry at the end of every round. Mm-hmm. Not hard, but just fast. Mm. I said, we got to do what Ray Leonard did. And I started doing it like round seven, eight, nine. And I was like, then I started getting in the groove. I'm like, oh, shit, this works. <laughs> and, uh, and then in the, in the 12th round, I knocked him out <laughs> with 10 seconds left. Right. And I didn't even try for the knockout. I just threw the combination and bam, it caught him. So, you know, I mean, it's just amazing how, you know, in certain fights you could be in a situation and you think, wait a minute, this is how this guy got out of this. And right. it worked for me. It worked. And then uh, it helped prepare me for the second Frankie Warren fight because I still have nightmares about that guy. <laughs> I mean, he was on me like a cheap suit, man. Like he wanted me to breastfeed him. He was like <laughs> constantly, constantly in my chest, man. And it was like, wow. But, you know, it was all a great learning experience because each fight helped me get ready for the next one. Right. That was a hell of a fight, that rematch with Frankie Warren. That was like from beginning to end. That was a, that was a rough, tough fight. You know, I think I fought five Olympic gold medalists. You know that? Yeah. Wow. I think it's five. I fought Patricio Oliva, Howard Davis, Meldrick Taylor, and Sweet Pea. I fought four Olympic gold medalists. And, and, sw- <laughs> and Sweet, Sweet Pea twice, so it counts as five. Yes. Yes. <laughs> there you go. So uh, when did you know that your boxing career was over? Was there a particular fight when you thought to yourself, I'm done? Yeah. I just beat Pat Coleman. Mm-hmm. And they came to the dressing room and said, you now have the rematch with Pernell. When they told me that, all the desire left me. Huh. Really? Yeah, I didn't want to fight anymore for that. And the reason being is because I had found out that my manager sold me out before the first Whitaker fight. They knew mm-hmm. that I was injured, but didn't tell me. And they had everyone around me tell me it was only tendonitis just so they could collect a big payday. And then, you know, when it happened, you know, the doctors told me that, you know, I I wasn't going to be able to fight again. And my managers were telling me, you know, your career is over. And I'm saying to myself, no, you guys are sadly mistaken. I mean, if I fought two fights with it like this, I think I can do a few more. And God bless me, I came back and and I, I, I didn't fight no bums. I fought... Nick Rupa, it was in one year. I fought Nick Rupa, Jesse James Hughes, Livingston Bramble, Kevin Pompey, and Pat Coleman, and Pernell. All in one year. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) All in one year, man. And when they told me that I had the Pernell rematch, I started crying in the dressing room. My wife said, what's wrong? I said, I'm done. I don't want to fight anymore. Hmm. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. She goes, why? I says, because, babe, I did I did what they said I couldn't do. What they said I couldn't do. I did. Right. I fought my way back to the top. But the desire is gone now. Everything left me that day. All my desire just left. It was gone. But hmm. I had no other way to make a living. So after that, I just went through the motions. Hmm. Right. And then I went from fighting welterweight to fighting middleweight. Right. I mean, I just, you know, I just didn't have the desire anymore. You know, it, it took a lot out of me, you know, mentally, more mentally than anything. Right. So at what point did you start thinking about making the transition to training? Was it while you were still 
at the end of your boxing career, as, as you said, going through the motions as a fighter? Were you already thinking about getting into training or did that come later? Well, believe it or not, when I was fighting coming up in 86, 87, 88, I was training amateur fighters. Oh, okay. I was preparing, I was preparing myself because I've always loved teaching. Is this something I've, I've always loved? Hmm. And then, you know, as time went on, you know, I had a couple of guys make it to the New York Golden Gloves finals. They didn't win it, but they made it. And uh, to me, that was a great accomplishment. You know what I mean? To work with guys to get to that, you know what I mean? While I was still fighting. And um, I don't regret none of it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it was good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the teaching aspect of it. So when I started training pro fighters, it just, you know, I had to understand that it's going to take them a while to pick it up. That they didn't, I didn't learn it overnight. They're not going to learn it overnight. Right. You know, we seem to forget that as ex-fighters. We think, oh, man, this is easy to learn. But, like, hold up, stupid. <laughs> it took you two or three years to get it. Right. You know what I mean? But once I made the adjustment and once I started staying really busy at it, I mean, I just I just loved it more. And then when you get a guy that listens and then you get good results, it makes you just feel better. And right. it makes you feel better to see that guy get closer to accomplishing his goal of being a world champion. I mean, to me, that's the greatest feeling in the world as a trainer. Mm -hmm. I got to say, probably the most exciting, the single most electric and, and shocking moment I've ever experienced sitting ringside was when your fighter, Antonio Tarver, knocked out Roy Jones in their rematch. Um, I mean, Roy seemed <laughs> unbeatable, man. But Antonio, even after slightly losing that first fight, he always seemed confident he had the measure of him. And what was it that you guys saw in Roy that gave you the confidence that Antonio could beat him? You know when I knew Antonio could beat him? Antonio told me one day that he beat Roy Jones in a basketball game. Huh. I said, you beat him in a basketball game? He's like, yeah. So I said to myself, I got the better athlete. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I said, I got him. And the way Antonio, Antonio is very deceiving. He's a very intelligent fighter. People don't give him credit, but he's very intelligent. And I just saw something in him. I said, he can beat this guy. And then I had the pleasure of picking Eddie Futcher's brain and Georgie Benton's brain before they passed. God bless them both. I've had the pleasure of picking their brains. Because what a lot of people don't remember is that the first man who really came close to being there first was Montel Griffin. Right. And Eddie Futch trained Montel for that fight. And he said, buddy, you got to offset Roy Jones's rhythm. I mean, you got to give him different looks. You got to offset his rhythm. You can't let him get... Make him, let him dance. If you start dancing to his tune, he got you. So you got to be ready and on point. You can't, but the thing with Roy Jones is you can't lose focus, not even for a split second, because if you do, he's going to get you. Right. And that's what happened with Montel. He lost focus for one second, and bam, it was a wreck. <laughs> so, and then Georgie Benton said to me one day, he said, buddy, remember this. I don't care who you are or how fast you are. You cannot punch and block punches at the same time. So you catch a guy in between his punches. Right. As we as we know, Roy Jones very rarely threw straight punches. He threw wide, fast punches. Because if he missed, that was his escape route. Like if he threw a wild right hand and he missed you, he would just keep going that way and be out the back door. Same with the left hand. I mean, he would throw a right hand. If you ducked it, he was going away, but he was still in position to come back with something else. Right. I told Antonio, when you see that right hand coming, go right down the middle. 
Can't Damn. miss them. <laughs> if you miss them, I'm gonna give you my eyeglasses. If you miss them with my eyeglasses, then it's over. <laughs> but Tava, Tava, Tava was determined. He's like, you know, he was determined, and and when I seen him spawn these younger guys, and he started catching them in the last week or so, I said, oh man, we got it. Wow, that was some moment. Even even so, even sort of having the game plan and knowing he could do it, were you were you kind of shocked when it happened? When it, in the second round, boom, it's over. In the second in the second round, yeah, I thought it was gonna be like about round seven or eight. Okay. But um, when Tava came back to the corner at the end of the first round, I pissed him off in the corner. That's right. The respect I thing. You, I, said, I said you're showing this guy too much respect. He's like. Don't use that word in this corner. <laughs> I said, okay, then go get your respect. That's right. That's when he went out and waited, and when Roy would just throw that right hand, right down the pipe. That's yep. right. Yep. Um, so, so that's certainly one of, uh, if, if not your, your very greatest, uh, victory a, a, as a trainer. Uh, you also had a lot of, uh, great victories with, with Arturo Gatti. Um, I know that, that you and Arturo had a, a rough ending, a bit of a falling out, but when you two were going good together, that was a hell of a partnership is, is what you did with Arturo, your most satisfying accomplishment as a trainer based on, on where his career was when you took over and what he achieved with you in his corner. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that when I got Antonio Tarver, he had just lost to, uh, Eric Hardy. Hmm. And Antonio told me after the fight, he was in the dressing room by himself. And everyone had told me I'm wasting my time with Antonio Tarlos. I said, I don't believe that. I see something in him. And bam. You know what I mean? So, you know, I got, you know, it's like Tarver, then, you know, you got uh, Arturo. And when I had Vernon Forrest, you know, a lot of people had written him off because he lost to Mayorga. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So each guy had their own story. Is just that Arturo at that time was the hottest thing going. You know, Tarver hadn't, hadn't been to that status yet. You know, when Tarver stepped it up, he got beat. But then when he got the rematch with Eric Harding and knocked him out, then everyone was like, wait a minute, we got to start taking him serious. Right. You know what I mean? Arturo was at that point where they said, okay, we're going to give you one last fight with Teron Millet. And when, if you win, cool. If not, you know, we're going to send you off to the pasture. But I knew he was going to beat Teron Millet. I said, Millet has no defense. Hmm. I mean, and then in the first Mickey Ward fight, he hit Mickey with a five-punch combination, and Mickey banged his gloves together and said, shit. I said to myself, (laughs) it's going to be a long night. (laughs) I said, it's going to be a long night. We ain't knocking this guy out. He, tra- he tried though. Thirty rounds. Uh, he he uh, certainly hurt Mickey quite a few times, but but couldn't quite knock him out. Yeah. But but there there's one moment from those fights that I have to ask you about. Um, I I was lucky enough to be ringside for all three of those fights. The first one in the ninth round, uh, the cameras didn't catch it, but I saw you walk up the steps with the white towel in hand to stop the fight. Uh, but Frank Cappuccino didn't see you, and Arturo started punching back, and you kind of quietly tiptoed back down. How close were you to stopping the fight there in the ninth round? I was getting ready to even not let him go out for the round. Hmm. Oh. When, when he got hit with that body shot and came back to the corner, 
he had tears rolling down his eyes, down his face. Hmm. His bottom lip was shaking. The referee and the and the doctor were talking and tying to me, and I'm like, I don't understand what the fuck you say. <laughs> but it bought him more time. Okay. Bought Arturo more time, and you know, uh, the ref was like talking to the doctor, and they're talking and tying, and they're looking at me, and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you guys are saying, man. <laughs> so Arturo got an extra stack two seconds, but when he went out for the tenth. I said, you got to show me something, baby, or I'm stopping it. You know what I mean? But his friend, Mikey Red, had grabbed me by my pants. I said, but if we stop it, he'll never speak to you again. Hmm. Oh, okay. So I walked over to Gary Shaw and Pat Lynch. I said, I'm not going to let him get hurt. I don't give a fuck if he never speaks to me again or not. And they said, okay, let's wait and see what happens. Then he started fighting back. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh-huh. you know. It's like you gotta. It's like you gotta think. You don't have much time to think. Right. Right. Because all it takes is one punch, and that's it. Right. You talked about, um, you know, with Antonio that people had given up on him, and you were able to turn him around in a rematch with Eric Harding. You're now training Sergey Kovalev, and the fight you've had with him so far, uh, he was kind of written off after his first fight with Eliezer Alvarez, but he won the rematch with you. Yeah. Um, what are you hoping to see from him going forward? Are you concerned about these legal issues that are flying around with him at all, or are you guys just focused, and, and what's next for him? To be honest, we haven't even spoke about the legal issues. Okay. I don't, I don't pry into anything. If you want me to know something, you'll tell me. If you don't tell me, then obviously you don't want me to know. So okay. I don't say anything. I don't ask any questions. I mean, and, uh, you know, and how I found out about the legal issue was when we were training for the Alvarez fight, this guy came in the gym and said, man, your fight is in trouble. I'm like, who are you talking about? He said, Kovalev. I said, what did he do? He said, he was in Big Bear last night. And I said, last night? I said, we trained last night. What are you talking about? I said, I know damn well he didn't drive the Big Bear at night. He goes, well, read this article. And I'm reading the article. And I'm like, man. Look at the article. I'm like, this shit happened a while ago. He goes, oh, I thought it happened last night. I'm like, see how rumors get started? I said, you know what I mean? I said, we trained last night. I left the gym at 8 o'clock. I know he didn't get from from here to Big Ben an hour. I mean, he's fast, but he ain't that damn fast. <laughs> so, so, you know, but I didn't still admit anything to Sergey when I went to the gym. I just left it alone. I mean, it's none of my business. I mean, I learned a long time ago. You, if, if somebody wants to tell you, you want you to know something, they tell you. They don't say anything, just leave it alone. Mm. So, what about what you've been doing with him in the ring? What did you need to do? Was he was his confidence shaky a little bit after losing a couple of fights? What did you have to work on with him? Honestly, reminded. You know what happened one day? First, when he first came to me, everyone told me I was wasting my time. He's, you can't deal with him. Blah, you know. The usual BS. But when he came to me, the first thing he did was admit to me everything he did wrong in preparation for the fight. Mm. The first thing he said, this is what I did wrong. I said, okay, take the tough man to come and say what they did wrong. Normally they point the finger at everybody else. Right. He took full responsibility. So I said, okay, buddy, you got to respect that. So I said, all right. So we worked a couple of days. Then one day he sent me a video of one of his amateur fights. And I asked him, I said, well, what happened to this guy? He goes, I don't know. What do you think happened? I said, I'm going to tell you what happened. 
you started knocking everybody out. Right. And everyone was expecting that. So all this boxing ability that you have, you let go of it because you went out there for one thing and one thing only, and that was to be the crusher. I mean, I said, so let's go back to this guy and understand something. If you hit a guy enough, you'll knock him out. I mean, right. if you hit him enough, he'll go. But you got to be smart about it. I said, you're not 25 anymore. Right. I mean, he's still got great legs. He's still got good reflexes. I said, but now let's conserve him, preserve him, man. If you don't need it, let's, if you don't need to get in the wall, let's not. And he's very intelligent. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, yo, let's go back to that guy. Because right. I want to go back to that guy. I said, but then let's do it. <laughs> so in days of sparring, if he got away from that, I said, oh, no, no. That's not what I want. That's not what we asked for, did we? He goes, no. I said, well, then let's get back to what we agreed upon. And then he do it. He's like, damn, buddy, I don't feel tired at all. I said, you did eight rounds. You don't feel tired. Why? Because you use your head. I said, so let's be smart about this, man. He goes, well, how'd you have, how did you come about having 80 fights? I said, by being smart. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I said, being smart. Yeah. Um, all right, so la last question for you here, buddy. Uh, you're you're a Hall of Fame fighter now. Um, you've trained plenty of champions, won Trainer of the Year awards. What goals do you still have going forward? What 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 motivates you at this point? I I have a couple of young guys that I really really would love to see become world champions. But my big thing right now, I have two things I would love to do: is get a small gym. Focus on the kids, not to make them fighters, but something about boxing, when you know, when you get good at it, it gives you a different type of confidence when you walk out and face the world. Right. You have a, a, a self-esteem level that's great. And, when you, and, and, and I believe a lot of kids need that because in other sports, it's a team. So if you win or you do good, it's like everybody. But in boxing, it's just you. And it gives you a whole different type of – I can't explain the confidence, but it just changes your whole demeanor in a positive way, I believe. Mm. I mean, because I was that kid at one time. So – and my second goal is to work with people with Parkinson's. Oh, giving okay. them boxing workout. Oh, awesome. It helps, a lot of, it helps a lot of people with Parkinson's. Yeah. So that's those are my two main goals. I really, really – if I can do that, I'll, I'll be happy. Wow, that's I mean, awesome, man. I mean, everybody, everybody's looking for a champion. If I can get a kid to leave my gym at 18 and call me back at 21 and say thank you, I'm wow. doing this now. I was able to do that now. I turned my life around. To me, that's something money can't buy. Yeah. To be able to help someone with Parkinson's, I mean, even if it's just live another year that, or two years, that to me... That means something, you know. I mean, it's not always about the fame and fortune. And everybody wants money, yeah. Everybody, you know, but sometimes, you know, I believe that, you know, it's just good to help people that need help, right? And that are willing, willing to take your advice and work with you. Not everybody is, but if you find that one kid that is, then you've done something. Yeah. So, you know, you made a difference in somebody's life and. To me, that means a lot because I was that kid growing up that was looking for something. I had a brother, God bless him, he's dead now, but 
once he seen how much I loved boxing, he stayed on my back every time to make sure I did the right thing. His friends stayed on my back. You know, his friends, they see me hanging out somewhere where I had no business. They say, listen, if you're not out of here in five minutes, we're going to call your brother. (laughs) (laughs) My brother saw me hanging out. He would say, you got two minutes to get off this corner. I was like, damn. But I knew if I didn't get off that corner, I was in trouble. Right. Yeah. And (laughs) so, you know, know, these guys, you know, they pushed me. Well, now let me say, I'm not going to say push them. They kept me on the right track, which changed my life. Right. So, you know, I mean, and I was that one kid that they helped. And when I go home, I thank them all. Well, you certainly did a great job, man, of turning that life around. And I wish you all the best in being able to do that and do that for others. It has been an honor and a privilege to talk to you. And I'm really, really grateful to you for spending some time with us. Um, congratulations thank again you. on the Hall of Fame. And thanks for joining us, Patty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Patty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks so much again to the great Buddy McGirt for joining us. That was that was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, remember that you too can be a part of the podcast. Uh, all you have to do is drop us a line on Twitter with the hashtag AskShowPod. And if you're jolly lucky, we'll include it in the mailbag. Uh, we will be back next week to review Tyson Fury versus Tom Schwartz and to look ahead to the June 21st showbox card we just mentioned and also there will be other things so an unambiguously exciting episode to look forward to until then thanks for listening